So while he's getting his stuff on, are you in England? Is that correct? Yeah, um, I go to university in Sheffield, which is like up north. Okay. So. Hey, Derek, we can't, your background is gone now. Hello, I'm Harry Robinson, and this is the AOA Podcast. You can't can't hear us either. Today, my guest is Derek Williams, a former pimp and human trafficker who went under the name Daddy D and ran a prostitute ring in Boston's old combat zone. Oh, there's two Derek's. Um, One might do. Oh, there we go. It's one of those days, huh? Derek was 16 when he first pimped out his 14-year-old girlfriend. From then on, he lived a lavish lifestyle at the expense of his girls until 2007. Now a grandfather, Derek is a reformed man and now works to spread awareness about the abhorrent evil of human trafficking and pimping, alongside sex trafficking expert and campaigner Dr. Dina Graves, who wrote the book Mind Games alongside Derek about his experiences. We good now? We all good. (laughs) After 32 years in the pimping game, Derek is both transparent and damaged. Looking at a man formerly known as Daddy D, I wanted to speak to him about the awful things he had done, what led him down that path, and to explore if he really can earn redemption after three decades of sexual exploitation and abuse. I hope you enjoy. Who is Derek Williams, I guess, in your eyes? Who is Derek Williams in my eyes? Derek Williams is... Um, an individual from the inner city who uh, fell into a life of drugs and crime um, due to low self-esteem and some issues at home and uh, ended up using drugs and finally, due to my drug addiction, using women to supply drugs, to supply my drug habit. Uh, I did that in the beginning to supply my drug habit. However, once I got off of drugs, I realized that the money that I was making and giving to the drug dealer could could have been going in my pocket. When I got, when I stopped shooting dope, I had a hundred dollar a day habit. So that $100 a day could have been going in my pocket, as well as if I wasn't down and nodding off of dope all the time, I could have got more work out of the girls and put more money in my pocket. So when I got off drugs and my mind was thinking what I thought was clear before I went to therapy, that's what I did. Yeah. Just to kind of... um. Uh, put it into perspective because when I when I read your story, it really did shock me, and I think it did kind of showcase the the reasons why certain people are pushed into certain kind of um, pathways. Um, you were very very young when you first started drinking and drinking. sixteen years old. My girlfriend was fourteen. My yeah. first victim was my girlfriend. She was unaware of my drug addiction. She was just in love. She came from similar backgrounds. Her mother was an alcoholic. It was easy to get her in and out of the house late at night. I was, I began going over there just having sex with her. And then when I realized that I could be selling her, that's what I did. I convinced her to sell herself because she was professing her love for me 
And I told her, if you love me, this is what you'll do. How, how do you go about kind of trying to convince? I, I, I mean, I guess maybe it's a bit different if someone is so young that they're kind of vulnerable, but like, it, it's, it's, I don't know. Is it, I guess with the setting that you were in at the time, was it more kind of easier to common, like more commonplace in terms of like people knew about pimps and, and pimping and that from that kind of age? Yes. And, uh, and that's what I did because when I was shooting dope, I was shooting heroin all of the guys that we used to go downtown and rob the buyers, you know, we used to go down there and rob the buyers. And these all, all these guys were older than me. And they started going up to the state penitentiary, you know, because they, we were getting busted. They were going to jail. I was going to jail. So um, I saw the young girls down there working for their guys. And I re- I got the, notion that I could take my girlfriend down there who was professing her love for me to, and you know if you love me this is what you'll do and we'll both have money. Jump in on that because Absolutely. it is it is probably in my opinion and Derek you can jump in on this easier today than it was even then because we have such a mental health crisis in the world due to the lockdowns and many other things the suicide rates the drug addiction all those things are off the charts so we have so many vulnerable people, it's easier for a trafficker just to come in there and prey upon those vulnerabilities. Absolutely. And I mean, from your perspective, Derek, as well, it was the case of, uh, it was it not that the girls were the ones that were kind of getting in trouble with the police, but the, the, the pimps weren't, I guess. Exactly. The girls were going to jail and the pimps were, and the girls were getting right out. You know, they would go to jail and they'll be back on the track, and the track is where they work. I'm speaking in pimp yeah. language. They're back on the track within an hour or so. Once they get arrested, you could go right down there and bail them out, and they could go b- right back to work. So in the end, I used to send my girls to work with bail money. So if they get arrested, they didn't have to even call anybody. They, they have the bail bondsmen's listed, in the, in the police station, they just call the bondsman themselves. If they get arrested before they make any money, they still have their bail money that I gave them. I sent them to work with because I might send them to work. And oftentimes I was in another state, you know, or in another country. Eventually, uh, I went over to Europe and up to Canada um, and left girls, left some people back here in the States while I was traveling. And they still had to work. So they would take their bail money out, out with them because I wasn't around. And if they got arrested, they just called the bondsman and bail themselves out and go back to work, of course. Wow. Who shows you the ropes, I guess, in, in that case, as to how to pimp? Or is it just something you kind of get to grips with on your own? When, when, um, when somebody like myself hits the streets looking for a father figure as I was, there are pimps, dope fiends, uh, robbers, burglars that are more than willing to take you under their wing and show you the ropes. Because as I learned in therapy, it gives them a sense of being about their self because they have the same issues that I have. They have low self-esteem. They're from broken homes. They have the same issues. They're not just seeking help. 
they're seeking an escape, just like I was. I eventually came around to seeking help and I got it. Do you think these people were trying to profit off you, I guess, by training you up or, or what, what would be their motivation? Ross? It makes you, it gives you, uh, uh, one of the guy that was first training, my first girl, he ended up scaring her out of the game by coaxing her into his car. She didn't have, we didn't have all the rules of the game, but that's how it goes. Once she gets in his car, she's his property. She, he put her in a hotel and she left and ran home. But his plan was to take her out of the state the next day. She was 14 years old, you know, and my girlfriend, so to speak. Yeah. So um, when that happened, um, those guys will take you under their wings, just like the, his girls took him under their wing, under her wing. And they, they coaxed her into the car and they put her in a hotel. They were getting ready to leave with her the next day. This was, quote, unquote, my girlfriend. Yeah. You know, so uh, I had an uncle that I was bragging to that I was doing these things. And he said, oh, he laughed at me. I talk about it in the book. He said, no, you, you can't have feelings if you're going to do this. You can't be involved in this game with your feelings. You have to be involved in this game with your mind. Hence, Mind Games, the title of the book. How easy was it for you to, I guess, kind of shake off those feelings or just to completely make yourself robotic to the kind of pimping game? Well, um, it was easy uh, because that heroin don't play. <laughs> that heroin doesn't play. That heroin, you're going to get up and do something to go get this money. So that was easy. That gave me the will to go get it. Cause I didn't want to go to jail like my friends. I ended up going, but I didn't want to go to jail like them. I didn't want to end up in jail and I didn't want to be sick. You know, I don't want to be dope sick cause you wake up in the morning, you have to have that heroin. So um, it, it was either be sick or pimp my girlfriend. It, the choice was, was easy. And then after she got scared out of the game and I did a few, I started having to do crime again myself. I talk about this in the book. It wasn't working. And um, so I had to go find another girl and that's what I did. And then I began to take girls down there. And this is what, back then, this was my, their entrance to the game. I would take them down there and show them, see, see these girls, she just went and did a blow job. She just went and had sex. See, you're giving that guy that money. We could be getting that type of money. Coming from where we come from and most of the girls that I brought down there came from, it was, it was a win-win. It was, you know, it wasn't even something that they would think about. I'll try it. They're having, most of the girls are having sex with numerous people anyway. And like I talk about in the book, most of the people that I, I um, trafficked were sexually abused by a close family member or friend before that I even encountered them. So that makes it even easier for the traffickers. And like Dina, uh, we talk about in the book and Dina gives solutions after every traffic, after every chapter to the problems. And we discuss the problem, the issue, how I got into their life. And then Dina gives at the end of every chapter, a solution to what could have happened, what could have intervened, 
And then I also quote on Dina's uh, how it could have helped me if this would have happened. You're absolutely right, Dr. Grace, because if this would have happened at that point in my life, I may have reared off to be that lawyer that I wanted to be and not, or the lawyer that I ended up needing. <laughs> and Harry, if you don't mind if I add, when you ask how easy is it to develop a pimp mentality, unresolved childhood trauma can lead people down one of two paths, either victim or victimizer. But you have that same kind of um, unresolved trauma that lands you snowball effect, basically. And that's what happened for Derek. He went out on the streets looking for a father figure, and they took him under his wing, introduced him to drugs, and then eventually how to become a trafficker. Yeah. And I mean, like I know that that was a big part in your life, Derek, in terms of you were on drugs and uh, and, and were exposed to kind of alcohol and drugs at a very, very young age, weren't you? Yes, I, I started... I started drinking and smoking marijuana the same day at age 10. Wow. I started shooting heroin. I started shooting heroin at 16. Was that just a natural progression of things, I guess, to go? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> looking, for, looking for a greater escape. I, I didn't know then that when I started smoking marijuana and drinking, I was trying to escape then. I didn't know that I was trying to escape all the childhood trauma that I had been through, but I was trying to escape. And then when that didn't work, I progressed, you know, mescaline, cocaine, and eventually heroin, which in the book, and I still call today, was my first love. The first thing I ever loved that I would give my life for was heroin. Yeah. I'm tearing up. Excuse me. I, I can imagine it. Were you tearing up in a, in a kind of emotional sense or just tearing yeah, up? Yeah, yes, 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 yes. How hard uh, is it to kind of think of those times where you were very uh, dependent on heroin and, and led down that kind of path? It depends on what space I'm in. You know, like Dina and I do trainings and sometimes I get emotional, sometimes I don't. But um, because I'm not teaching and I'm <laughs> this is a podcast and I'm really talking from my heart and I'm trying to allow you to see me and to feel what I'm saying. Um I don't know it's just hit me like that. Do you feel that um obviously you, you talked about having to almost put your kind of feelings on ice for it for a long time. Do you feel yeah. now now that you're obviously a reformed man and and do you feel like almost like your kind of emotional side has kind of flourished once you've left that life? Oh, most definitely. Um, I still today um, feel things, you know, I'm still transitioning. Um, I, you know, I was 32 years into the woods, you know, I, it's only been like 15 or so since I've been out. So, you know, I walked into the woods for 32 years. I got to come out of here. You know, my I, the entrance is 32 years. Um, I, by the grace of God, I'm so glad that I have a savior that uh, can make things go quicker. What's the word of accelerate things to his pace. So I don't have to go through all of the trauma. All I don't have to relive all of that. And what he's doing in my life right now 
is he's accelerating those things that I have trusted him with. I gave him my life, I gave him my story, and he's doing what he wants to do with it in his time as we wait and stay faithful. And we waited and stayed faithful. And look, um, I'm in the United Kingdom today. You know, <laughs> look, look at God. Um, you know, pimping's not a, a, a it's it, it's known kind of in the world or in the UK through like pop culture, I guess, or through songs by like Snoop Dogg. It's not, <laughs> it's not something that's like, certainly if it's commonplace in the UK, it's, hidden away and kind of pimp culture is not as understood or not as kind of weirdly fetishized and represented in the media. Um, so kind of un to understand the logistics and stuff like that, how would you go about kind of recruiting girls to your kind of cohort? Um, what I would do is, like I said, I would take them and show them. I would take girls down there and I would show them what we could be doing, what we could be having, the flashy cars, the jewelry, the things like that. And I would, I would shop for girls like at bus stations. I talk about all this in the book. I, at bus stations, runaways, um, uh, juvenile homes, you know, detention centers where the girls are trying to escape, uh, shopping malls, things of that nature. And it becomes, um, almost second nature that you can spot a potential victim, and it's just like fishing. Some will, some won't. You don't you don't focus on those that won't. You focus on those that will, and you give them your attention. You give them your eye undivided attention because, like I said, I did this for thirty two years. This was my only means of support. This is what I did for a living. And um, I lived a very lavish life. However, it wasn't the life that my creator created me to live. So by his grace and mercy, he brought Dina into my life at a time where I was ready to put, I was already attempting to write a book myself, but not having the knowledge that Dr. Graves has. And she found me, we hooked up and we, just been pursuing uh, what God has called us to do. And I'm very grateful for Dr. Graves because when I get down, as I sometimes do, um, she gives me encouragement and uh, pulls me along, say, keep going, keep going. We're going to make it. And that's a great help to me. How many kind of girls did you have on you and how much money were you making at your peak before you went kind of into continental and went to Europe? Oh, I was making, every girl had to bring in $500 a night. Um, and I had set up to seven girls at one time. So, uh, but on average, I would bring home, <laughs> bring home, they would bring home twenty-five, $3,000, $2,500, $3,000. Now, that's not all profit because I dress, I have to clothe, feed, transport, house them, you know. But on a daily basis, if if a girl gives me $500, I may put 100 back into her, you know, out of that night. And some nights I don't put anything back into them because they have clothes. And once they got their own apartment, which I did for them, they had food. So 
you know, just taxis and things of that nature, condoms, because I made sure that they always use condoms and um, uh, condoms became, you know, you got seven girls working, condoms became, become uh, an expense, you know, so you have to count that in. The kind of weird juxtaposition between, you you know, the idea of kind of pimping and, and this kind of criminal um, kind of... Uh, way of making money but then also the kind of planning and management and kind of admin that you had to do to kind of keep things afloat i guess in terms of making sure you know the girls are are have got the right resources and are kind of clothed and stuff like that and making sure that you're almost like your product it is is presentable for people do you i don't know looking back now do you find that almost slightly strange that it was like you were running a business as if you were a proper business manager but it obviously it's kind of an explicit and um, you know it's explicit and illegal business. It, well, I ran it like a business, and I had a saying: um, I print, I pimp for bread and meat. If I don't pimp, I don't eat. You know, um, because that's where my bread and my meat came from. That's all I did. You know, uh, like I didn't have a side hustle. You know, I stopped using drugs and selling drugs. My girls were smoking marijuana. I would purchase that for them, make sure that they had what they needed when they weren't working. They couldn't get high at work because they're taking a focus off my money. But um, I, I would take care of their needs so that um, I was needed. Because if you get away from me, if you leave me, first of all, if you go to another pimp, he's probably not going to be treat you the way that I treat you. And there's gorilla pimps out there. And we talk about this in the book, gorilla pimps and finesse pimps. Um, finesse pimp use more mind games. Gorilla pimps use more physical. So uh, you may end up with a gorilla pimp, you know, and sleeping in a nasty hotel. Like I, when I started, that's where I started. But now, you know, you, you're in an apartment with your wife-in-laws, your wifeies, and uh, you got food, but you're going out there if you want to. And also, I would, uh, I would talk about this in the book as well. I would let the girls go home. Because if you're a runaway and you want to go home for the weekend, I'll let you go home. So you can see what you were running from. Because nothing has changed back at that foster home. Nothing has changed back with your parents. Whatever you were running from, they're still doing the same thing. And they're going to put you in the same position when you get back there, or even worse, now that you've been with a so-called pimp or they don't know where you've been for three months. Did you see yourself as a kind of savior for these girls? I saw myself as a way out to a better life. I thought, I was, and for some of them girls, I was a better life, but it was not the life that they should have. I didn't show them the way to a better life, the right way. The, the life that they weren't, and not so much because instead of being abused by one man, they were being abused by many men. But on the same token, mind games, I had them think your stepfather, he was taking it from you. You're making a choice to do this because you can leave whenever you want. However, if you stay, you got to go to work.
because you talk about the, your your mindset back then of the you know these girls have a choice and they're, they're coming uh to work for you um uh, you know out of, out of their own kind of mindset and they're making a, a choice do you feel that on the face of it like broadly that it was a choice or do you feel like looking back now that they were forced by their circumstances and the fact that they had probably nowhere else to go and the fact that you kind of shopped for them at, at you know, juvenile homes and, and kind of bush shelters and stuff like that. Do you feel that these girls actually did have a choice in the end? They had a choice. Um, and coming with me may not have been the best choice, but they did have a choice. They could have stayed in the foster home or they could have stayed in that juvenile detention center or they could have stayed at that bus station where I found them or they could come with me and see what this life was like. And again, unlike a gorilla pimp, my door was always open for you to leave at any time. If you want to go back, I'll take you back to that bus station, drop you right off where, you, where I found you. And everything that you accumulated while you were here, you can take that with you too. Because those other girls don't want to wear your stuff. You you mentioned kind of Derek about uh, gorilla pimps and kind of utilizing um, violence and stuff like that. Obviously, I know that wasn't your kind of mo in terms of being a, a finesse pimp. But did you utilize violence at all with these girls if they ever pushed back? Yes, yes. If um, uh, it, we give examples of this in the book as well. If a girl who was with me, um broke one of the rules that I have set for them, um, they would be punished. Um, when you read the book, <laughs> you're gonna say, wow. Having, having, um, having girls under your quote unquote control, you're gonna get some pushback. And if, um, like we call uh, in the game, they call it having your stable. You know, the girls are your stable. So if one of your horses start kicking in the stable, the rest of the horses are going to start kicking in the stable. So you have to take that horse out and break it. You know, it, I'm thinking in terms of horses now. You have to break a horse so that somebody can ride it. You know what I'm saying? The same thing with these girls in my stable. When you push back, I got to take you somewhere and break you so that you can continue to finish taking care of my business or you make a choice to leave and not take care of my business anymore. But what I can have you do is kicking, making noise, pushing back in my stable, getting the rest of my horses riled up. What methods would you use to break these girls? Violence. Um, um, I made one girl sleep in the bathtub. Um, uh, things of that nature. Um, I would, um, I got one girl, she was out, spent, I talk about it in the book. She was out, she was out using drugs and she wasn't supposed to. I had just, I just acquired her, took her out and bought her a whole bunch of outfits and stuff of that nature, and then took her to work. And she was out smoking crack with, quote unquote, my money, with my clothes on. 
So when I did find her, I took it, I couldn't find her. I took everybody else home. It was the end of the night. I went back down there to look for her. I found that she didn't have any money. I took my clothes, my wig, and everything back from her in, while she was in my car, drove back around the corner where the girls were working, and made her get out the car butt naked. In the rain. In the rain. It was raining, too. Thinking back to that kind of person who you were, I, I don't know. I asked you at the start kind of who is Derek Williams. Would it, Do you see that as a part of Derek Williams or is that explicitly the pimp Daddy D? Yeah, that's Daddy D. And Daddy D is dead. Let me just let all of your viewers know Daddy D is dead and he's not Jesus. He will not be resurrected. He's gone, died and buried. Do you feel kind of remorseful for what, you know, that Daddy D did? I feel remorseful for, I feel remorseful for Daddy D. That person that Daddy D was, see, he was a very hurt individual. And you've heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. And that's who Daddy D was. He hurt people. He used his own uh, mind to manipulate others so that he could feel better about himself. You know, so what I did was the same thing that was done to me. I'm like those people that taught me the game. They were using me to feel good about themselves. They feel like I was their protege. Look what I made, which I was. And Daddy D looked at those victims the same way. Look what I made. Because, you know, um, if you get a girl that uh, jumped out of a second story detention center window and, you know, with nothing on but her pajamas. And three months later, she's five states away, dressed up with a wig on in high heels, getting your money. Daddy D would say, look what I did. Look what I made and feel good about itself. You know, um, in hindsight, Daddy D was destroying lives because his life was, he thought his life was destroyed. He didn't know about the redemption, the power of Christ at that time. So when I found out and latched on, I have been redeemed. Do you feel as Derek Williams, as the person speaking to me today, saying that Daddy D is dead, do you feel accountability for the things that Daddy D did? Or do you see, because there might be some people that could hear you talking in the third person like that and might kind of, um, I don't know, make the kind of jump that, oh, it's you kind of almost burying it in a separate name as if you didn't do those things? If you get no, I'm not burying it like I didn't do those things. I very well... I very much so acknowledge that I did those things. And I also acknowledge that those things that I did were wrong. Excuse me. And um, uh, I have paid a different kind of price. I paid with my pain. I paid with my soul. I paid with uh, the trials and tribulation 
that I that God is taking me to to bring me to where he wants me to be. So I paid a different kind of price. No, I didn't go to jail for trafficking. Um, I'm, I, I thank God for that because if had I been sentencing, sentenced or went to jail for trafficking, I probably would not have written mind games. I probably would not have met, met Dr. Graves. I wouldn't be talking to you and I wouldn't be able to help the millions of people that we're going to help through this book and this podcast. Absolutely. In, in terms of when, and, and I know you went to prison for armed robbery, wasn't it? Yes. Um, do you, when you kind of went in there, do other inmates know you as, I guess, Daddy D the pimp, or did you go in as someone who was a convicted armed robber? Yeah, you, you <laughs> yes, sir. You, um, I went in as a, a armed robber. My charges were armed robbery. I was not convicted for pimping. However, there was some guys in there that knew, um, that knew that I was a pimp. So when they read my, because everybody can read your transcripts, you, they tell you that nobody knows what you're in there for, but they know, even if they don't know, the guards will tell you, uh, will tell your other inmates. Um, they knew that I was in there for armed robbery. So they was like, you know, the people that did know, they were like, yo, yo, Daddy D, uh, you had to get your own money, you know, but it was for an old case that caught up with me. So I was like, yeah, man, I still get my own money because I don't want them because in in the uh, jail, a pimp is just like a pedophile. You know what I mean? Yeah. They look at pimps like pedophiles. You know, you sending a woman to do you wouldn't you whisk you are sending women or children to get your money. You know, brother, were you scared to go get your own money? You know what I mean? They look at you like a pedophile when you go to jail. So, yeah, I went in there under the armed robbery charges and I was Derek the armed robber. I know, I certainly know in the, in the kind of British, um, I, I know it's the same in the kind of US in terms of the fact that uh, any kind of sex offense or, which I guess pimping is, is, a, is a, a, you know, a yeah. kind of has that kind of um, shroud around it in terms of the other inmates aren't, you know, that you're not popular with other inmates. Um, exactly. Obviously, that comparison was made, I guess, with paedophiles in terms of uh, other inmates putting you on that same level. As someone who is, you know, now working to help stop kind of like, trafficking now, do you, would you put human traffickers and pimps on the same level as in terms of kind of evil or wrongdoing as, as paedophiles, or do you think that's a kind of unfair comparison? Yes, I think that... Um... If you're trafficking uh, juveniles, yeah, um, you're you, <laughs> you're a sort of pedophile. You know what I mean? You're in. It's not. Oh, you, oh, y'all getting me? Um, it's not just that you're having sex with these kids. You know, which is what a pedophile does. But you're sending these kids out to have sex with many other pedophiles. You understand? And you're gaining a profit from it. You know, you're worse than a pedophile. Yeah. You're worse than a pedophile. You're supplying pedophiles with what they want. So 
uh, in my humble opinion, you're worse than a pedophile. In in terms of, and I, I can see obviously it's it's hitting home for you very hard, and I, and I can imagine it's a very kind of conflicting thing to have to try and relive emotionally. I guess. Um, how many? When you were obviously, I know you had like seven girls at the time before you went kind of intercontinental. When you were working with human trafficking in like Europe and stuff like that, uh, how, did you do? De- how many? I guess were were juveniles, or did you deal with juveniles a lot? In that regard, no, I no. When I traveled, I took um, when I went to Europe, I was with adults, but and eventually I trafficked only in adults. Like I said, I spent thirty two years. I started with juveniles. Eventually, I started I all all of my girls. When I got out the game, thirty two years later, I didn't have any kids. I had children, but I didn't have any kids under my wing. They would come in and out. Other girls would bring them home, you know, because I had girls that became recruiters. She not only became my re- main recruiter, she also became my wife. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> um, they would bring girls home. And if they bought an underage girl home, they would be the buffer between me and that underage girl. Because, you know, for legal legal reasons, like I went to Canada and I bought a girl back from Canada and talk, this is in the book as well. Um, I put them to the girl I went over there with. I put them on. I drove over. I put them on a bus and then I drove through customs. They went through customs on the bus and I met them in Vermont and got them off the bus. I had to get them back in the country. Yeah. She had over the course of those 32 years, more than 150 victims. Many of them were juveniles. Many of them were juveniles. He's very transparent and he also doesn't make any excuses. He owns up to what he did and his heart's desire now, not only keep kids from becoming victims, but keep kids from becoming Absolutely. In terms of that kind of that kind of reform could you talk me through um i know it was a very specific time and a very specific date that you had this kind of revelation and stuff like that and 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 began to transform your life i guess the, you know the kind of date and time of of daddy d's death um could you talk me through how how you came to turn your life around in that regard was it something that was building for a while near the end or was it some was it a sharp kind of instant um, turn around? No, it was something that was building. Um, even during, even while I was, let's uh, talk about this in the book, the the uh, girl who I was trafficking, who became my wife, while we were together, she brought me to a church. I was raised Catholic. She brought me to a church where um, the spirit of the Lord was in and um, I was able, because as a Catholic, the, you can't have a Bible. You can't read the Bible yourself. But um, I was given a Bible. I was able to read the Bible. And the Spirit of the Lord hit me. And I went back to doing what I was doing. But that seed was planted. And that's, if nothing else, praise God, that's what I'm trying to do here today is plant a seed 
for someone who may see this, who may see somebody that's down, going down that trap, that path, a trafficker or a victim, and just to let people know that this thing is out there and it's out there for our children. And there may be somebody like Daddy D planting seeds in your children's heads right now. So we have to make this thing, uh, we have to build the awareness of this thing and not only build the awareness of it, find solutions for these kids and the traffickers. And that's what we try to do. That's the motivation for our book and our trainings. We're trying to dispel and get this thing out of here and raise the awareness so that people whose kids are in this, and so, everybody's not going to be helped. There are some kids that are not going to be helped no matter what you tell them. I was one of those kids, but plant a seed anyway. When you, when you think of those kids and you think of those young you know, teenage lads who are getting into pimping, as someone who, who went down that path and, and made it through, obviously what they're doing isn't right, but do you feel kind of a level of almost empathy for these lads? Or, or, or maybe empathy is the wrong, wrong term, but in terms no, of... Empathy is the exact yeah. term. I feel for them because what they don't know is you're doing this to them because you feel bad about yourself. But they don't know that. I didn't know that I was doing that because I felt bad about myself. All I knew that I was the man, I was getting money, and things were going my way. I used to say, I'm having it my way. You know, uh, I'm like Burger King. I have it my way. So um, they don't know that. So I do have a bit of empathy for them. And this is what I'm trying to do for the traffickers out there as well as the victim. If the seed could just be planted, if you're trafficking and you, or you're thinking about trafficking, take a deep look inside. What is it that would make you subject another human being to life-threatening situations that you will have no control over once she gets in that car and they pull off, once that uh, buyer walks in that hotel room, however you do it, OnlyFans, Facebook Live, however you're doing this, once they're in that room with that buyer that you don't know anything about, he could be a Charles Manson, that you're putting that person in that danger. You understand? And the trafficker needs to know, what if that was your sister? What if that was your mother going in that room? You understand? I have three sisters, you know, and a bunch of daughters, you know. What if they were going into that room? That's what I want the trafficker to hear. In terms of the kind of trafficking side, in terms from going to, from a, a, a pimp of, of, of seven girls to to going kind of intercontinental and going to Europe and stuff like that. Could you talk me through how you make that leap and also give an explanation of, of I guess, what the process is? Because for a lot of people, it, it's a it's a kind of endemic that isn't kind of talked about. It's, it's not something that is well known as an, as an issue, I guess, with the kind of general public, but is obviously massively serious and massively underlying so, yeah, could you give me a talk through, I guess, how you make that leap to international human trafficker and what the process kind of is? 
I was in California and I was in that California scene and I got hooked up with a pop star's mother. You know, I matter of fact, my cop it talks, it's all in the book. I went to bar, I went to California, one of my cars broke down. I flew to California, put the girls on the bus. And when I got there, I had to get my hair done. I had, you know, the pimp hairstyle. So I had to get my hair done. I went to a beauty salon that my cousin had previously brought showed me. And there, there was this pop star's um, mother was in there. So um, I had some weed that I had bought for the girls. I wouldn't go on, I wasn't gonna give it to them because they would smoke it all on the bus ride. So uh, they were, I was in there, a uh, few stars were in there and this pop star's mother. And she was talking about weed. And I told her, you know, I said, I got something in the trunk. So I took her out there to, and gave her some weed. We exchanged uh, numbers and pleasantries. And uh, she called me a few times. I didn't answer. I was out on the track and she pulled up. She came up on the track and said, you haven't been returning my calls, but I knew I could find you out here. I pulled her around, I, I pulled her around the corner. I said, okay, okay, I'm working. I promise I'll give you a call tomorrow. I gave her a call. We hooked up. We started dating. They were going on tour. She said, I can go. Do you want to go on tour with us? I said, I, she said, I can get you your ticket and I can get you paid as an assistant of the park star. So you'll get a small stipend. So this is a chance of a lifetime. This little boy from Roxbury, the ghetto ghetto in Boston, uh, has a chance to fly internationally. And I'm getting money, like I said, $3,000 every day. Yeah, I'm going. Whoever's not here when I get back, okay, but I'm taking this trip. So I went. And that's how I got over there. I went over there. I looked around. I took a, we went to the track. I, uh, Went down to a couple of bars and saw how things were. Things didn't work out that well. So I just enjoyed the trip, but I got paid for it. And my girls were here when I came back. Wow. And, and it's important for people to realize there are multiple kinds of traffickers, just like there are multiple. Every victim has a story. So does every trafficker. So beyond guerrilla pimps and finesse pimps, for example, transnational crime syndicates traffic girls back and forth. All the time. All so the it time. is so important for people to realize it's happening in multiple ways. And you have to be able to identify even part of the healing process is understanding who and how that child was trafficked. Yeah. And in, in terms of, I guess, just to provide a bit of clarity as well, because obviously, you know, there is human trafficking on a level that is is completely kind of um uncon i mean unconsensual is going to be such a, a, a strange word because obviously these girls I, I, what i wanted to ask in terms of you kind of bringing people over the canadian border or bringing people back from europe was it kind of you would go to places and go oh i can treat you better if you come to the us with me or was it is that the kind no, it's of just like uh get the girl i bought from canada um i saw her on the track my girl, my talk to her on the track, she asked her, would she like to come to the US? And uh, 
she didn't speak. She didn't speak any uh, English. I had to get a French and English book so that I could communicate with her. And when she got arrested in Boston, uh, I just never saw her again. I imagine that it's almost a kind of extra level of vulnerability when you take someone out of where they're actually from, especially if there's a language barrier there, they're all, they're even more dependent on you. Yeah. And I, and I did that within the States as well. That was my key within the state. You know, if I get you in Alabama one night, I put you back on the track in Alabama, but the next day I'm moving you, you know, if even if it's just to Georgia, we getting ready to get up out of here to get you away from what you're used to. So I can put my game down, put my hooks in. The trap is set. Now I get you out of there. I can clamp it. Yeah. Taking the bait. You Like my first girl, you got in that car. You waited in that hotel till the next day. You're out of here with me, just like he was going to do. And I didn't know that then, but that's something that I acquired myself. That's how you do. You give the guy uh, one night to get back at his girl, and then you move her. Wow. You talk about being at kind of a, uh, you know, a party with with all these kind of celebrities and stuff like that. And I mentioned before about kind of, you know, Snoop Dogg and 50 Cent songs and, and uh, representations in the media. I guess, one, what are your thoughts of the kind of fetishization of of pimping and uh, in, in the media and how accurate is the representations of kind of pimping in um, mainstream media and television and films and stuff? Some of it is true. Um, some uh, in like in the rap songs, a lot of them call it pimping just because they have a bunch of girls hanging around them. The girls smoking their weed, they feeding the girls but they got a whole bunch of girls around them all the time. And, you know, they having sex with numerous girls. They call that pimping in rap songs. That's not pimping. Pimping is gaining your funds, making a living off of women, exploiting the women, exploiting girls and women for your own personal gain is my definition of pimp. Mm -hmm. But Derek, one of the things you did talk about in the book was how a movie at the time influenced you yes. on that road to trafficking. Yes. But this, the guy that influenced me, the Mac, Max Julian, he was a real pimp. He went to jail. He got out of jail. He, he had a girl that told him he was going, she was going to make him the biggest Mac Oh, everything he wants to learn from Mackin, this is what she said. Everything you're going to learn from Mackin, you're going to learn from me. And she did that for him. And he became a, a, a quote unquote hero of mine because he, he got out of jail and he did nothing but pimp. The police couldn't stop him. You know, he, he was getting money. He had, the big, he had the finest car, big jewelry, a lot of women, and he was in control. And that was like. And it was glorified in a movie, Harry, before. Yes, it was glorified. In and the that movie. made Derek think. I said, I'm, I can do that. Yeah. And do that. And that with 
the uh, waking up sick from that heroin, it gave me what I needed. And then once I lost my girlfriend and my uncle, I talk about this in the book, he said, you, you can't do this with your heart, you have to do this with your mind. So I learned very early in my game uh, not to care, not to care. And so I had to relearn a lot of things through therapy and uh, God, mainly God who directed me to therapy and um, just having a repentant heart and knowing that I'm not that man anymore. And because of what that man been through, I may be able to help somebody else. So that's what we're here to do. Help, plant a seed. If it doesn't help anybody that gets it right away, at least we know we planted the seed, you know? If I would have had the opportunity to um, come to the UK when I was back in the life, I would have taken it. So when this opportunity came up, I jumped at it. I mean, thinking about you now, obviously, as, as a reform man, as a man who's completely changed his life around when being very kind of deep uh, in the game. To kind of to kind of close up, um, I mean, you're now a, a grandfather. I've seen a little hand kind of pop up <laughs> at the side of the... That's my, that's my son. Oh, your son. Yeah, I am a grandfather. Oh, I, I, I knew you were a grandfather. I wouldn't have made that. I am a grandfather. However, I'm also 63 with a three-year-old. Oh, wow. How? Yes, that's my son, Isaiah. Do you feel like you're kind of reinventing your life now? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> yeah. He said, I'm Isaiah King Davis. That's his name. Oh. <laughs> um, yes, I'm definitely reinventing my life. Um, I'm a totally different person. I'm actually, uh, I have eight children by eight different women. Um, I'm actually, you see, my wife's out working <laughs> and I'm actually uh, really in his life now, you know, and, uh, that's something that I was off and on in some of my kids' lives for as long as me and their mother was getting along. I've always been financially there for them when I was in the life, but um, I'm actually, yeah, I have a, a lovely wife and um, she supports everything that I do and I support what she does and, and we're growing and evolving together, planning on uh, moving to Texas um, later this year. And uh, uh, things that God is just good, man. God has been good to me and uh, he gave me this opportunity to speak with you and to hopefully plant some seeds of faith and hope for your viewers and your listeners. And again, um, we're here. We're here, man. Uh, if you have any questions that come up later, shoot me or Dina or Dina or I an uh, email, and we'll I'll gladly get back to you in a timely manner. But uh, I just want to say thank you for this opportunity, man. It, it's been great, and I hope you got what you needed for your viewers. Well, thank you so much, Derek. Just a uh, one last comment to to wrap everything up. Um, if you can imagine that, that there are maybe 
um, you know, some young lads, you know, 16, 17 years old in, in kind of rough upbringings who are are going down that path of pimping or, or have thought about it or whatever, and they're seeing this now or they're, they're looking up you, what would you want to tell them? I would say um, this is not the, that's not the road you want to go down. First of all, you're more valuable than that, you know, to yourself and to those around you. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody who will listen about how you feel and why you're thinking that way. And reach out. Ask for help. Please ask for help. So the, the book is called Mind Games? Mind Games. Yeah. It's Mind Games, Understanding Trafficker Psychological Warfare. And available on Amazon and Kindle. Yes, sir. All good book uh, retailers. And I'll make sure to put a link uh, in the description and share it out. But I want to thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Have a good one.